Hello and welcome to another edition of the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. Today's episode is one of an occasional series examining the lives and work of some of the great folklorists of the past. Charlotte Sophia Byrne, born in 1850 and living until 1923, was a writer and author who's best known for a number of achievements. Her definitive book on the folklore of the county of Shropshire, her work on the second revision of the Handbook of Folklore, and possibly most notably, the fact that she was not only the first female president of the Folklore Society, but also probably the first female president of any learned society in the United Kingdom. Where other folklorists of her time directed much of their attention to looking at works previously published by other scholars and putting forward their own theories, Charlotte was a pioneer in fieldwork, getting out and speaking to people, observing and recording their beliefs and customs. Joining me to profile this important contributor to the subject is Nicole Stout. Nicole is not only the author of a new book which represents Charlotte in an innovative way, but is also a direct descendant and the keeper of the only known surviving notebooks of hers. Nicole, welcome to the Folklore Podcast. Thank you very much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Uh, Before we kick off, uh, I'll just ask you to say a little bit about yourself and your interests and how you work with folklore and what you do, and then we can move on from there to talking about today's topic. Uh, so my my name's Nicole Stout, and I recently published a book called Unexpected Companions, which focuses on three women, one of which was Charlotte Sophia Byrne. And my interest in folklore is really through Charlotte Byrne, because she was my grandfather's great aunt, sorry, my great grandfather's aunt, which is the easiest way to explain that rather than lots of grapes, but she was basically an ancestor of mine and a much loved figure in our family. So I, um, so that is where my interest in folklore has come from and where my study has been focused. And indeed, she is a much loved figure within folklore collection generally, I think it's fair to say, uh, and, and definitely one of, one of this country's um, great folklore collectors. So we will come to your book in a little while, but, but first off, let, let's have a little um, chat about Charlotte. Now, um, I think it's fair to say that that folklore collecting um, kind of had a real peak in in one respect, in the kind of Victorian Edwardian era through to to maybe the middle of the 20th century. And and things have have changed a little bit in in how people um, work with folklore then. But I think I uh, to my mind, there, there are kind of two camps here. There, there are the um, middle class, wealthy slash upper class, respectable gentlemen who went out and found objects and artifacts and made museums. And then there are the same kind of society class of ladies um, who are responsible for collecting so much of our folklore and social history and recording it for which we should be extremely grateful um and i think i would place charlotte into that camp of those kinds of 
middle-class, respectable ladies who, who had a love of the field. Is that fair to say? I would agree with that entirely. She, um, she started her collecting from quite an early age, but she very much was uh, one of those in that camp that wanted to go out and be in the field. And perhaps that's where she, um, you know, there was a group of them, the, the likes of Lady Alice Gome, I guess I would also put in that sort of field, who, who went out into, um, into the communities to learn more around what they were, what was being spoken about and, and um, discussed. And Charlotte was at the forefront of, of doing that, of encouraging more field work in its literal sense, rather than going into a library and picking up a book and and sort of finding out bits and pieces through that. No, no, one, of, one of the books for which Charlotte is responsible is um, the Handbook of Folklore, which, which is a, a, a wonderful book, and I'll, I'll get you to talk a little bit about that in a moment. But, but, but before that, it's worth saying that... Um, Charlotte was quite a character, I think it's fair to say, and um, certainly uh, of her time in many ways. And I was just going to read the opening paragraph of the preface from the Handbook of Folklore, which I think paints a wonderful picture of of the kind of person that I think we could say that, that Charlotte was. So she writes in the beginning of this book, This book is not written for the use of members of anthropological expeditions whose work demands far more thorough acquaintance with the subject than could possibly be conveyed in a single volume. It is addressed to officers of the public services, to missionaries, travellers, settlers and others whose lot is cast among uncivilised or half-civilised populations abroad to residents in country places at home, to medical men, philanthropic workers and all educated persons whose lives and duties bring them into touch with the uneducated. How does that paint a picture of Charlotte? <laughs> it, it, in two ways. I let's, let's start with the language because the language is um, definitely of its time and her 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 research and what she um, what she wrote down and and collected we is extremely incredible but uh, behind that when you're reading the stories there is that very victorian you know upper class attitude that you um, you know this this folklore thing was something that that the poor people and i'm using inverted commas on that believed in because they were you know of a more simple nature perhaps and and that that does um isn't that comfortable to read from a modern day perspective for sure but if you go past that however what she was trying to do with with both the handbook and with writings that she um did in her earlier years there is a huge push to have encourage people to be more methodical in how they are collecting their folklore. And that was really what the, the handbook was there to, to try to help people with, to think beyond just taking that one piece of folklore that they've got, whether it be a, as a saying or a superstition, and to understand where that is coming from and to ask around that, um, that one snippet as much as they, they could and to get a sense of, 
the historical or geographical and, and cultural context that that piece of folklore was was from she's you you can sense in in that um preface just her um uh, she's a no-nonsense kind of person and and she really would pull people up for for uh, for referencing something incorrectly and she used at least one of her um presidential addresses if not both to to make that point with um one of the with a, a saying that had come through from Oxfordshire, the the little white dog view. Did you hear? Um, where someone had heard somebody be described who was lazing around in a field as, um, oh, he's got the little white dog, and they, this person who'd collected this piece of reference, um, thought it was to do with what he, they'd heard in northern France, where such th- such sayings were linked to corn spirits. And she, she was very keen on, on making the point that you have to understand the cultural um, community that you're in to realize that actually they're referring far more to, they make those sort of references around diseases more than they do around, um, they make these references around diseases and this sort of, oh, he's got the, is very common for that. And she makes the point about, you have to understand that in these sort of farming communities, you will have all the animals working, they all have a purpose, they all earn their keep, apart from the little white dog who sits in front of the fireplace and does nothing and is idle. And so it's effectively a reference to somebody being idle is somebody having the little white dog. And that's, and that's what she's very keen on all her life is making sure that people, when they're collecting this um, folklore, are doing it in, in a methodical and systematic way. And you really see that in the handbook. That that's what she's trying to encourage. Oh, and when you say her uh, one of her presidential addresses, of course, uh, she was the first female president of the Folklore Society, which in itself was quite a feat, wasn't it? Now, now, how did um, how did Charlotte get involved in this in the first place? What what sparked her interest in folklore, and how did she come to start collecting it? From a very early age, the uh, she 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 says that. The first time she came across folklore, she was on um, a, on a boat with her father, uh, and these these would have been sailboats of sorts. And the her father was whistling, and the sailor turned to her father and said, told him to stop whistling because we've got enough wind as it is without you whistling for more. And she thought that was curious, and and as any seven year old would do, got out a notebook and and jotted it down. <laughs> and 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 that was really the start and she kept notebooks all through her life and you know we sadly don't have many that have survived and the ones that we do um the earliest comes from when she would have been just turning 13 1863 62 into 63 and there you have you see lots of different references not only to folklore but the natural world and, and history so it was a broad interest she had, but folklore really caught her imagination. And then she, in, um, in, in 1872, she wrote a piece on local folklore for the Seven, Trent, Seven Valley Naturalist Field Club. And that was really what um, propelled her forwards because a lady called Georgina Jackson saw this piece and wanted to speak to her. 
And Georgina Jackson was also a folklore collector, particularly interested in, di in, in dialect. And she was collecting um, Shropshire folklore, but also Shropshire words. And she employed um, Charlotte to help her, first of all, with the dialect work, but then into the, um, to help her collect pieces for the Shropshire folklore because she wanted to write a book. And unfortunately for Georgina, she became too ill to, um, to actually see through the, the book. And so it fell to, lot, um, to Charlotte to continue that and to actually um, collect and edit a book, which then became Shropshire Folklore, Sheaf of Gleanings. And that was what brought her into the, the circle, which, it, which was Folklore Society. And in that community, you mentioned her notebooks. There, there, there are what three remaining notebooks, which which you have, don't you? That's right. Yeah, uh, and also uh, I'll talk more about this when I wrap this uh, program up at the end. But just to say as well that we are very fortunate that that Nicole has digitised those notebooks, which we now hold in the folklore library and archive, and and which. Um, are available for for research purposes if people want to access them in that way. I'll talk about that later, but um, that they're, they're quite a recent addition. But pleasing to know they have been requested twice already by researchers to have a look at, which which is fantastic. Um, so uh, Charlotte's work is still very much um, useful to people to this day. Uh, now you 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 talk about the way that she got into that. There, what did her family make of this? <laughs> I'd, I'd say it was mixed. The um, the her mother was very supportive, and I and that that's reflected across her entire edu educational um, experiences because her mother Char Charlotte Anna I'll call her mother Charlotte Anna to differentiate her from Charlotte. Uh, they did like to name each other the same names. <laughs> <laughs> so Charlotte Anna had come from a very cultured, educated background, and she certainly imposed and encouraged that on, on her children, the, the girls as much as the boys. And Charlotte Anna was certainly the one that encouraged the, the folklore interest, although I don't believe she was necessarily that interested in it herself. One of the pieces that Lottie writes about um, pace eggs talks about the fact that she was quizzing her mother on on sort of what was happening on during this Easter period when her mother lived in Bury. And the end result was that Charlotte concluded that her mother was not that interested in, in observing it because she couldn't remember any of it. And so Charlotte Anna was really there to, to encourage Charlotte's interest rather than necessarily because she had one herself. But nevertheless, it was actually through her mother that um, Charlotte and Georgina Jackson were connected because there's this wonderful letter that Charlotte Turner writes to her daughter saying, I don't, basically to paraphrase it, I don't really care if you don't want to meet this woman. I think you should meet her. So you're going to meet her. <laughs> <laughs> and she, and she did. And, you know, the rest of that was history. I also um, believe that Charlotte Anna um, was one of the first subscribers for the folklore record. If, um, if my memory serves me correctly. And so again, she was, they're encouraging that connection for for Charlotte. The the broader family were um, perhaps less impressed by folklore. Um, her her 
She had a number of unmarried aunts uh, who lived in um, the Byrne family house, which was called Loynton Hall. And they, they were not at all interested. And at one point, uh, Charlotte had brought over um, a manuscript to, for them to read and have a look at at the behest of Charlotte Anna and uh, the aunt writes about how it was a bit dull and and it sort of went on and on. And, and I think that really sums up how a lot of the family felt about Charlotte's interest. However, what perhaps she didn't see within her generation and, and the older generation was she did then see in terms of interest in the younger generations, her nephews and um younger um and younger cousins were very interested and were involved in it and were actually part of the the some of them were part of the conversation um as the international folklore congress that she was she helped to organize and her um and her nephew arthur byrne wrote quite a lot for the folklore later in life so it was mixed she published quite a lot, didn't she, during her time? And as you say, unfortunately, not not much of her research material survives now. Just the, just these very few notebooks, which is a great shame, but but not unusual uh, for a lot of these sorts of uh, archives of collection. Which um, there was there was not provision made for for stuff to happen to this kind of material when people died and whatever and so often it just got uh skipped or trashed or lost or, or whatever but she did publish quite a lot didn't she so um that's both books and articles yes she did publish a lot she published first off the um Shropshire folklore book and then she wrote almost consistently from the time that she joined the Folklore Society in 1883, um, various articles for for them. She wrote for other um, pieces as well. She, for a while, was involved with the Cheltenham Ladies College, and she and we have um, at least one article that she wrote from her time with them, as well as um, her the nephew Arthur Byrne was. Um, involved in the North Staffordshire Field Club, and she also um, wrote for him as well. So all through, mainly, I, would, I guess I would say mainly articles, really, in terms of, the, if you were going to count it in terms of numbers, in terms of pages, Shropshire Folklore is, is quite a, a tome of a book, so that might still still beat all the articles put together. And how was her work received, generally? I... The, I mean, the Shropshire Folklore book was really well received and was complimented hugely at the time. It was seen as a bit of a vanguard for being such an extensive collection of county folklore. The, she, it wasn't the first county folklore collection, but it was perhaps the most extensive and the most scientific, uh, arguably. And so it was very well regarded. And her her general writing was, um, again, you know, she was part of a group of people pu- pushing for the scientific approach and pushing for that sort of referencing things. And that um, was something that was, on the whole, the way that the, that the um, society was, was going. It was, 
In its early days, um, the Folklore Society, like, like a lot of other learned societies, was, was very much um, the, the realm of the patriarchy, um, and it took a while for, for ladies such as Charlotte to be able to really um, find, find a hold in more senior positions like she did. And um, there have been, a, a, you know, throughout the UK, some absolutely marvellous female folklorists back in that time, you know, and, and going forward from Charlotte, Catherine Briggs, you know, Venetia Newell, Theo Brown, lots and lots. Um, but but like so many other things for, for women, it, it was a bit of a struggle to get to that position. Do you, do you think that Charlotte's somewhat formidable character helped her to uh to find a position in that way i i i definitely don't think it was a negative for her i she she knew what she wanted and she was also um incredibly reliable sounds the wrong word but you know she was a consistent part of in terms of writing pieces and being present and she went to 1883 from being just a member to 1887 being part of the council. And at that point on, you really get the sense that she is an invaluable linchpin for a lot of things. She helped uh, Sir Lawrence Gome framework the first hand, um, folklore handbook. And then a year later, she's, she's in two committees for the, um, for the international Folklore Congress. So there's an element of her personality which has just so much energy and force and intellect that I think if she wanted to do something, then it was probably very difficult to to say no to her. And by by later years, you get the sense that they were very reliant on her. She was editor of the journal for, I mean, the best part of of eight or nine years. And when she Resi- the year she resigned, they they sort of procrastinated for about six months because they basically didn't want her to resign. Mm. And it came to November and of 1908, and, and they still hadn't actually appointed anybody else. And so they went back to her and said, are, are you sure? Are you sure you don't want to carry on? And she was like, you know, a very terse letter. Like you say, you know, she she didn't beat around the bush on these things. And so they then had to go and, and find somebody else relatively last minute. But within a week of having decided that she's you know, realizing she's not going to be editor, they then went back to her and said, well, in which case will you be president? <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so I think she, she came from a very unusual background, not in terms of landed gentry wealth, but I think in terms of the influences around her. Her father died when she was very young and she was brought up in with, you know, surrounded by aunts and grandmothers and um, and a lot of female presences. And I think that had perhaps an influence in how she saw the world and sort of not necessarily afraid of being in a in a room full of men. I mean, she really was the only woman on the council for a lot of the time. So Charlotte was the first female member of the Folklore Society to become president. Um, And she uh, was very well respected for her research in in many ways, as you say. Um, 
did she get on with everybody? Did did everybody agree with what she was doing, or or were there still uh, other dynamics at play? You you can never know for sure on these things. Um, however, I think that there was almost two groups. There was the group that felt that um, you know a scientific approach was appropriate, and that um, and the methodical side to it, but. I know for sure that she she was a very firm believer in the uh, in survivalism of folklore that these things came through from different time periods and were just reflected slightly differently um, according to the present in terms of like modern folklore and I know that that was something that wasn't agreed with with everyone the when she wrote her, I think it was the 1911, but anyway, one of the presidential addresses, she refers to the fact that there are others who would uh, dispute survivalism. And I think that's a slight dig at uh, Gaster, who was the, uh, um, the president before her, who was quite vocal about not, about being quite cynical about it. And she would, she gave some examples to try to, to, um, to, to sort of explain where she was coming from, uh, you know, again, her, her love of cross-referencing means she can never just make a statement. And uh, the one I particularly like was around um, Pontus Hill, where they, on Palm Sunday every year, will go up to look for the golden arrow. And she explains that this golden arrow is believed to have been left by a king who fell in battle, and then points out that around this area, uh, um, Pontesford Hill or somewhere nearby, there was actually a battle between the West Saxons and the Welsh in six, um, 661 AD. And so you get the, so she's bringing that point back about how something that was happening to that day had some kind of historical context that may well be where that folklore was coming from and hence that sort of survivalism element to it. So she was a very um, vocal on, on that belief. Is there anything else about her which we haven't covered that you, you think we ought to mention before we uh, move on? I think the only other thing I would um, add is her interest in calendar customs. It was a huge part of her, uh, of the Shropshire folklore book. She dedicated a large chunk to not only, you know, the, to, to my mind, the obvious ones of, of Christmas and, and Easter and Halloween sort of thing, but also every other day that might be celebrated in between. And, you know, she comments on things like Mothering Sunday as this, as this concept that some parts of Shropshire do, which I found quite interesting to, to read about giving, <laughs> given Mother's Day these days. Um, and so that was a that was a large part. And, and with the notebooks that she wrote, one of the first notes that she that we have from her on on folklore is actually of May Day in Devon, where she comments on the fact that girls were going to houses with their dolls all you know, gaily dressed up and they would expect pennies for for sort of showing this display. And right at the bottom after she'd written this, she wrote and a similar custom, I believe, happens in Leicestershire. And so you've really got this sense of somebody from an early age who was very interested in, in, um, in these sort of festivities and moments that were being marked one way or another. And her last project, um, 
that she was still doing when she died in 1923 was um, was an updated version of Brand's Antiquities, the calendar customs um, area. And her presidential address in 1911 announced this project and that they were going to be doing this. And that, to me, says something because you know, this was this was obviously an area that she would have had influence on deciding what got picked and what got assessed. And it was calendar customs that she she did. So I think that that's um, quite an interesting element of of Charlotte was that she was always very interested in in these and how and how people marked the year. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the May dolls. That's um, something I've written about myself, actually, and, and is recorded on a few occasions in the transactions of the Devonshire Association, this, this whole custom of, of, um, of very, very ornately decorated dolls in some cases being taken around in shoeboxes and just presented at, at people's doors and going, look, look, here's my doll, give me some money. <laughs> it's, it's a much nicer version of Penny for the Guy, if you like. Yeah, yeah. No, it sounds sweet. <laughs> she never married. Um, what do we know about her personal life? Very little, really. Um, I the the family law, which I I did take slight advantage of in my book, was that there was a love interest, um, but that not, that um, it never came to anything, and and. How true that is, genuinely, we just don't really know. I I can't imagine that there wasn't any um, sort of romantic interests for her, but I also think that just who she was and what she was interested in, she was she was basically a bit more interested in in going traveling and speaking to people and and sort of working rather than looking around for a husband. A husband, certainly in Victorian times, came with a lot of baggage, <laughs> the, you know, expectations on, on what you were going to do. And, and it was very unusual to therefore be able to go off and do what she wanted to do. I think many people would argue that a husband still brings a lot of baggage. <laughs> uh, you, you mentioned your book there. So let, let's talk a little bit about, about your book. Tell, tell everybody the, the premise of Unexpected Companions. So the, the premise of it is it's um, based on three women who all led um, remarkable um, lives that broke, that broke the social norm. And it started with the idea of, of researching my, my mother-in-law's grandmother, who we knew very little about. And from that family research, I wanted to write about this lady called Amy Mello and what I discovered was that what I felt was appropriate was actually that there were more than one woman, one person in the family that had done, had led a life that was different, that had inspiration, that had sort of paved the way for future um, generations of women. And those other two was my grandmother, Winifred Byrne, who went from an incredibly poor tenant farmer, farming family in Wales to be um, a nurse at Westminster Hospital. And, and she married um, Charlotte Byrne's great nephew, uh, John Byrne. And so those were sort of the three women that I wanted to focus on. And I set them in a slightly supernatural scenario where they are 
meeting an, a future descendant and talking to the future descendant, try to help her with some problems. And they do this over dinner. And what I found with Charlotte was that although I, I, I expected to write a lot more about her time in the folklore society and the fact that, as you said, she was the first woman president and all the rest. And actually what I got drawn in on was, was the folklore itself and the um and the beliefs and the superstitions and the stories behind so much and so this the the book um i sent i decided to base on halloween because i felt that that was appropriate not only from a sort of an ancestor worship and feast of the dead sort of concept but um but also because it brought it because of the fact that it was bringing back some of that folklore and then i used a lot of what I had read through Lottie's writings and and slightly beyond, but mainly I I I was inspired by what Lottie had collected, and I put that through the book as well. And most of it, I tried to either um, put within Lottie. I'm sorry, I'm saying Lottie because that's how the family always referred to her because there's too many Charlottes in the family. So let me go back to calling her Charlotte before everyone wonders who I'm talking about. <laughs> but um, So I tried to, I tried to use her own words as much as possible is what I'm trying to say, both within the, both within family letters and within the writing itself. And I did that across the three women as much as I could, but I was very fortunate with Charlotte that not only do we have her public writing, but we also have, a lot of her private writings. And so my my intention was to try to give these women voices when their stories hadn't been told through life. And with Amy and, and my granny, a lot of it was, um, my granny being Winifred, a lot of it was uh, unknown and had to kind of be dug up. And then the other side with, with Charlotte was that it was all there, but actually some of it was also family law and not quite correct when you started to read the letters and um, and the diaries behind it all, and and some of those family letters of, of of Charlotte's are included as part of these notebooks, aren't they? Now, is that is that her making copies of letters for her own later reference? Yes, I I believe it is. They are. I mean, the letters um, the letters in the notebook that you're referring to they are between her grandmother Mary. Um, well, some of them are between Mary Goodlad, who was her grandmother, and and her daughters. So um, Charlotte Anna and um, Charlotte Anna was one of six, uh, five girls and, and six siblings. Um, and and also the older generation to that, which was the the Howarth. So Mary Goodlad's um, writings, as well as as um, her mother to her. As well, so they go back quite quite away, and they are Charlotte writing them down and recording them for for posterity. Uh, and there's there's even one that has no family connection, but is one she came across going to visit somebody else, and they had this tragic letter written um, by um, the daughter who was out in India during the Indian Mutiny, and and about the fact that that she had she didn't know where her husband was and she was she didn't know where her baby was and and you know it's it's incredibly heartrending wrenching to read and but there, there, there's Lottie no, I'm sorry there's Charlotte just sort of writing it down in, in her notebook and and sort of making the point 
about it. So she was she was one for recording for posterity and and for history as much as for folklore. And we should certainly be thankful that that at least some of that does survive because it does give a, a really interesting insight into um, into not only her life but the the time in which she was living in that way as well. How did you go about doing the research? Not not just about Charlotte, but about um, Amy and Winifred as well um, to to draw everything together. I know some of it some of it has to be speculation, of course, because the, there is not that much detail surviving uh, as you include in the book. But but how did you set about trying to essentially do, do a fairly major project in family history and then? turn it into this what is because i really enjoyed it a very very engaging read for anybody who is not related to you (laughs) thank you very much um i i it depended on who i was researching to be honest with you i for amy mello we actually had the name of her first husband uh as john when it was actually joseph so my first port of call with with her was um, uh, Ancestry, the online, you know, family tree um, service, and and there are others as well. I also used Family Search and, and a number of them. But basically, I I went onto the online systems to see what I could find. And as the story grew with the information I had, I also contacted various archives to um, see if they could give me the, the, the documents, the death certificates and birth certificates that, that I needed. And I spoke to family members, which is a dangerous thing, as I sort of put at the back of my book, because you, like any, like any family story, it's similar with you know, the folklore, you need to cross-reference these things because what is told down the line or what gets assumed by by implication often isn't actually what happened and that happened that was a common occurrence actually with with Amy Mello's story because I just don't think she shared a lot of it at all and um and then with my granny with Winifred Davies again she never spoke about her childhood and and she had a she had a challenging upbringing similar with to Charlotte well not similar to Charlotte's but she had the tragedy of also not having a father who was around for her childhood and that the mystery behind why that was had never been told my grandfather genuinely never knew where her father was for his for or you know that he'd been absent and so researching that and looking into that and piecing out family law versus what um what actually the records would tell you was very interesting and and again with with Charlotte, it was it was the letters and the articles and and my grandfather, John Byrne, had really saved me a lot of time because we have, I, I want to say mountains, which is obviously an exaggeration, but we have four huge files of letters dating back to the eighteen hundreds, and I will own that I haven't read them all, but um, I basically read all of the ones through Charlotte's lifetime and he had very kindly gone through them all and and recorded them and tried to put them into some sort of chronological order. Being my grandfather, he'd done it with 
Biro. So, so you've got these 1850 letters <laughs> with 1850 and Biro written on them, which is perhaps not great from a from a like, purist perspective, but was very useful. And and so those are how I found their stories. And then it was really about trying to piece their stories together in, in a way that made sense from a from a plot arc and um, and that you could draw on because they were also very different personalities. I, I feel that Amy Mello was, again, a, a very, well, they were all strong people, but Amy was very self-assured as well as Charlotte and very vocal with that and knew her mind and, and knew what she wanted and wasn't afraid to say so. And so you, I enjoyed having that dynamic across the dinner table where you can just imagine the sort of the awkwardness that would sometimes erupt from having two people not afraid to say something and wanting to hold that conversation to themselves. And Charlotte was a lover of food, wasn't she as well? She was. And you, you see that in, um, in the, in the letters and the diaries, they're always commenting on food on, you know, they went somewhere and they, they had tea and then they went here and they had tea. And today I made parkin and I made marmalade. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of references throughout about their food. Yeah, uh, it's it's again culturally interesting from from that point of view as well to to see just what you know what people were eating, what they were doing uh, at that time. As, as I say, it's it's a really fantastic story as as well as as having this historical element in the, the book. Um, it's funny in places. It has pathos. You know, it it, it it's kind of crosses the whole gamut of, of emotions in a way which you'd expect for a book of that type so i would urge anybody to to have a look at it if if people want to get a copy where should they go they can come to my website which is nicolestout.co.uk um, or they can go to amazon where it's also available uh, i would urge everybody to get a copy directly from nicole it will benefit her much better that way i'm sure it will and i will sign it <laughs> even better <laughs> have you considered doing anything else with all of this material that you've gathered now i i have a i have a project in the background so i would like to write a second book which will be um with family um dynamics and folklore within it i i grew up in jersey so i feel that i want to explore the the folklore of jersey because there's quite a lot there as well however the um the I feel that the project with, with Charlotte is is never never done, and one of the things that I've been looking at recently is 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 how her um, looking at the the letters and the diaries and and comparing that to her Shropshire folklore and trying to tie in you know where she was when she was writing some of this because she was very good at referencing back on um on where pieces on you know the time and the place that she was and then you can go to the diary and you can see that Alice because they they were never her diaries sadly they were Alice's diaries her youngest sister but Alice would write you know uh, Charlotte has gone to Albrighton and then and then you'd have this reference to Charlotte being in Albrighton doing this this research so I quite enjoyed that so I might try to see if I can piece something together that would look remotely interesting from a broader perspective rather than just my own curiosities. But my, um, 
my main my main next project will be coming up with another um, fictional story using family dynamics and and folklore with the same characters or with different characters with different characters there has been a request for a um, a sequel to this and I do feel that there is quite a lot that was left unsaid especially sort of uh, their later lives and so I might I might let Ellie grow up a bit and then um, and then bring them all back together in, in some slightly different format because I would love to write a bit um, a bit more on them and and explore some of the stuff that didn't get into this first book. And I think it would be very well received too, and it's certainly a very a very rich vein to tap into there. I think as well, uh, Nicole. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and and talk about this. I think Charlotte is a really important character in British folklore and and, um, you as much as anybody now has done a lot to to bring that to people's attention and and to ensure that what is remaining of, of what she did is at least preserved and accessible and people know about it so I thank you for that and thank you for coming to talk to about to us about her today Thank you very much for having me. It's been a delight. I'm grateful to Nicole not only for giving up her time to chat to me about Charlotte's life, but also for facilitating the depositing of digitised copies of Charlotte's notebooks in the Folklore Library and Archive. You can find out more by visiting the website at www.folklorelibrary.com and visiting the document archives. This was episode 99 of the main podcast, meaning that we reach a milestone episode 100 next time. More about my special guest for that one in just a moment. In the meantime, I just want to note that we've restructured the output of the Folklore podcast across all of our projects recently. Now, supporting the Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash the Folklore podcast will help not only this show, but also the book club and, additionally, the vital work being done through the Folklore Library and Archive to save, preserve and make available folklore records and research for the future. Support still begins at just a pound a month, but extra content is now drawn from across our projects. Also, if you believe in the work of the Folklore Library and Archive, which is run purely voluntarily, but which has already amassed thousands of pages of important documents which would otherwise have been lost, then you can make a donation on the website at www.folklorelibrary.com slash fundraising. You'll be able to see on there what our current goals are for money raised, all of which is put into the running of the Library and Archive. We're delighted to announce that the Library and Archive now has a patron, in the form of Michael Rosen. He believed in what we were doing and was gracious in accepting the role, and we're extremely grateful for his support. Next time, for our 100th episode, which will be a feature-length talk, I'll be speaking with anthropologist and TV presenter Mary-Anne O'Hotter, who you may have seen on Time Team, Sky News documentary programmes for the Smithsonian, or in many other places. Marianne and I will be discussing folklore in the landscape. I hope that you can join us. 
Thanks for listening, and see you next time.